it's really easy. It's just that the discussion that needs to be had is more a political one about who should be delivering that care. We wouldn't find this acceptable in any other field and any other specialty within healthcare. And I just don't understand why it just seems to have been thought of as being like, okay, you know, we just have to live with it. That's just the way it is. You know, no, we don't have to live with it. We can do better than this. Hello and welcome to Slice in Time with me, Linda, host of Whitlam's What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, a platform for discussing topics crucial to health that are typically not taught, glossed over, or approached from the wrong angles in medicine and public discourse. As always, stay in touch with and keep up to date by following Whitlam's on Instagram and Twitter. You'll find comprehensive show notes with references and further reading related to this episode and more content on my website, lindadaz.com forward slash Whitlam's 21 for this particular episode. There you'll also find a link to a glossary with terms for anyone unfamiliar with words popping up during this discussion. Please also note that this is a podcast for education and entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as individual medical advice. I also want to include a content warning today. We discuss sensitive topics including suicide and transphobia. Please do be mindful and take care. The quote in the title, The NHS is letting down trans people, will be referred to later in the episode and is from the House of Commons Women and Equalities Committee report on transgender equality from 2016. I was so grateful to have not one but two guests on this first episode after a bit of a break. Dr Sophie Quinney, a GP working in Wales, and Dr Kate Nambiar, a sexual health and gender identity doctor working in England. We discuss how to support trans and non-binary persons in primary care, the referral process to gender identity clinics, and try to demystify and debunk concerns about hormones used in gender-affirming therapy. But we also discuss so much more than transition-related healthcare, including the wider social issues faced by trans people where our attention must be focused, as well as how medicine and allied healthcare professionals can do better, because we need to. Now let's get straight into it. All right, so if you could just start off by introducing yourselves for people who don't know you and just say a bit about what you do and maybe kind of your connection to gender services. Do you want me to go? Sure. Hi, uh, I'm Kate Nambia. I'm a sexual health doctor and also a gender identity doctor. Um, I worked in sexual health for, oh God, a long time now, since 2003, uh, I started doing that. Um, And then uh, in the last couple of years uh, I've worked uh, at a gender identity clinic uh, looking after trans and gender diverse patients um, but it's something that I, I've been doing for uh, well, I've been doing for my, all of my life I'm a trans woman so it's as much part of my own history as it's part of my professional practice and um, for me being able to work with my community is a massive privilege and it's something that I really love and I have a, a passion for so yeah that's me. I'm Sophie Quinney I qualified in medicine in London in about 2000 and I did lots and lots of things before eventually settling to train as a GP in Wales in where I still live I live in Cardiff I've been a GP for six years now um, and I also have a specialist interest in trans health uh, meaning that I did some additional training Um, And I was located in London for about a year or so. And then I returned to Cardiff to my roots to settle into a job with the new Welsh Gender Service, where I work again um, in my capacity as a GP with a special interest in trans health, supporting people through the transition process. 
Um, in around 2018, I also worked with the Welsh Commissioner to start the setup of the new service, which at the moment um, offers a tertiary level care for adults over the age of 18. Um, and a lot of that work was focused on building what's called a primary care model. So making sure that trans people coming through the service had access to hormones and other treatments close to home. So it involves setting up what's called local gender teams in each health board area. So that would be equivalent to trusts in England. Um, and I did a lot of work with fellow GPs like myself to empower them, to train them up so that they felt confident uh, to help with initiating uh, hormone therapy um, and lots of work around that area. Great, thank you so much. And that's great to have kind of different perspectives on it as well. Of course, this will be kind of different because your expertise or you've been working in Wales, you've been working okay, in in England more and then I'm based or I've been based in Scotland and then that's just kind of the UK and there's of course Northern Ireland and then there's lots of different countries that do things very differently um, just in terms of requirements and, and laws and, and all of that stuff and um, so what we say might not apply to everyone everywhere today and I'd like to start talking because that's kind of what people unfortunately will kind of focus in on a lot of the time um, and that's kind of the transition related care itself as you both have experience in that um, and so like I said this will vary depending on where you are in the world and also depending on what the individual feels that they want and need uh, the trans or non-binary person might want different things and I think that obviously people will think um, about transitioning their mind will go to hormones and gender reassignment surgery and like that side of things but then there's obviously like kind of a whole other things as well that can be involved and so even if someone just if it's the first time someone kind of came out to you in primary care or something like that what are other things that you could kind of support them with things that you could kind of highlight to them if you've had trans patients before and that's kind of their main kind of concern that they're coming with and of course there's also the kind of you know the legal things pronouns name changes and things like that so I was wondering if you could kind of chat through that a bit more and we'll kind of get to like some of the other things that people often will think about later on. Yeah, I can. I, I'll I'll start things off. Um, I think that you're right. People always think about trans healthcare as being transition related healthcare, but actually, there's there's a lot more to it than just just that. Um, it's actually, you know, the, the bit around transition is actually a fairly small chunk of our lives. Um, uh, it's really important. I'm not saying that we 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 don't need to focus on it and we don't need to spend time on it, but you know, relative to the rest of our lives, it's actually only a really fairly small bit. But it's also the time that can be the most difficult. Sometimes it's the hardest thing to do. I'm just going to give you my personal experience of what it was like as a I was a medical student. I went to to see my GP um, and it was terrifying absolutely terrifying to, to to come out to a complete well not a complete stranger somebody I'd, that I kind of knew but you know there was that there's that massive power dynamic you know if you ever go into a, a, um, a consultation as a patient and uh, with 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 a doctor particularly when you're very young uh, as, I, as I was I really felt that 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 difference um, and I felt very very vulnerable and the fact that he was really understanding that he said okay I don't know anything about this I can't deal with this and this disappointment but we're going to spend some time we're going to talk about it tell me tell me what you what you feel and we're going to book another appointment come back that meant a huge amount to me um and I think that the those those first impressions that you that you that you get that first 
reception that you get through through the door can make a massive difference. I was a student at that time in Oxford, um, and I and I moved to London after my first three years and went to to medical school um, in in London. And um, I happened to fall on my feet and found a really amazing GP at that at that point. And I was really getting uh, at that point. I'd already started on hormone therapy and I was looking to get surgery. And again, she was somebody who the first time I saw her, she said, uh, "You know what." I, I need to spend a bit of time just to to get the information, to to talk to other people. Uh, and you remember, this was the '90s. There wasn't there wasn't any of this um, stuff that was out there. People didn't. It was a really niche area of medicine. Uh, most GPs didn't know anything about it. They didn't know what to do or, or, or you know who to refer to, where to find information. Um, but the fact that she would go that extra mile to find out what information that she needed to help me through my transition was really. Um, it's just really amazing. Uh, I look back on it now and I, I think, well, yeah, that's obviously that should have happened, but it could have gone completely the other way. And I hear so many, I suppose, horror stories from from people who don't get as warm a reception and don't get as um, an accepting uh, reception from their, their GPs. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's, I guess, my my desire, my mission, if if you want to use that word, to to try to improve that, to improve that healthcare education for everybody, so that people can get the experience that I had just out of sheer luck, uh, but it can be just a standard thing. Yeah, thank you. And I guess I was a GP at the other on the other side of the desk, um, <laughs> on the other side of that power dynamic when I first met a trans person. And I was fortunate enough that um, <clears throat> the practice nurse that I was working with at the time, uh, this, was a, this was a primary care clinic that was set up in Cardiff to support people who were fleeing persecution and seeking sanctuary in the UK. And I, I had the good fortune of being asked to work a shift in order to see uh, somebody in that position, a trans man who'd fled, who'd fled persecution in, um, in Saudi Arabia. And so I had a heads up. And um, what it meant was that when I met this particular person, I already had an awareness of what their, what it was that they needed. And, you know, like Kate said, they, what they needed was a referral to a gender identity service in the UK, but also they were having to source um, hormone therapy on the black market um, because they had no other way of getting it. So I had, um, I did have a question about access to, to treatment, to safe treatment, and I had to do, and I did exactly what Kate's GP did, which was to say, oh, gosh, I, I really don't know enough about this. I'm going to, you know, leave it with me. Let, me. let me look it up. Let me go away and find out, and I'll get back to you. But I think had I not had that preemptive kind of message from the nurse, I might not have um, entirely known how best to prepare myself. And I think two things came out of that. The first was I realized just how unprepared I was and how unaware I was and that I'd never come across this in medical school or foundation years or, well, I'm older than that, I did house officer, but, um, or, or in GP training actually. And so it struck me that, that how uneducated I was even around um, pronouns and identity as such. But also it made me realize the more I dug, the more I found out that actually um, health access to specific areas of trans healthcare, such as hormone therapy, was actually really patchy. Mm. And I thought, gosh, that, that can't be right. How can it be that the NHS isn't providing equitable care across Wales? And it was actually that, in, that meeting that actually made me who I am today, which is to take a different career path and join 
general practice with working at the gender service because I, I wanted to make it right. Um, so they're very powerful, both very powerful experiences. And I, I agree, I'm committed to, to, to teaching. And, um, you know, I, I now thankfully am very well supported to deliver training to GP trainees and students and things like that in Wales. So, yeah. That's great. Thank you. I was um, saying earlier to Kate as well that I attended the Glasgow LGBTQIA plus society's workshop on trans healthcare because I was like, well, I'm interested in this and I've not really had any teaching on it. And when I say not really, I've not had any teaching at all on it. Um, and then I watched it and it was like an hour workshop and I was just like, this is great. Like it's covered so many things and I can't believe that I haven't had anything at all and of course also we kind of said that it shouldn't really be like a tick box day either like you shouldn't be like one trans healthcare day that's you gone um but even just like no one can know everything unless you're a specialist working that service but you're going to meet trans patients wherever you are I think the prevalence is quoted about one percent um everyone who is working in healthcare should be prepared to just you know just the basics no one's asking anyone to know everything you know it's not too late but I wish that I had that kind of earlier, just even kind of introduce the thought to me. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm grateful for you both being here and helping me educate hopefully a bit as well. Do you get trans people presenting and just kind of wanting a bit of counselling or just if they don't have any support in, in other areas of their life? Are there things that can be kind of done in primary care before or either if you don't want to be referred to a gender clinic, um, just kind of things in the meantime or as like the only thing you do essentially if that makes sense yeah definitely there's lots of things that can be done uh without ever needing to step foot into a gender clinic and in fact a lot of the a lot of the really good work happens from organizations outside of the medical practice for example i, I for a long time was a trustee of a really amazing charity called claire project who run peer support for, for trans people in brighton for for many many years and that's really just about trans people helping other trans people to be able to just to live everyday life whether that be going through transition or before or afterwards um like i say the everyday the everyday stuff uh, and that can sometimes be about helping people to go and negotiate healthcare which is sometimes the hardest thing to do like i said before it's a, it's a it can be a scary environment to see somebody to to talk about something that's so personal to you something that you may not have talked about to to anybody else um and then you know here's a, here's a stranger asking you all these intimate details about your your life um, and there's a you know question about whether that's the right thing that should be should be done in gender clinics but at the moment um you know many services do do put people through quite a you know a rigorous psychological psychiatric kind of assessment and um it's quite a traumatizing process in some in some cases. Certainly in the past, it um, was you know was a, a lot harder, I think, for many people to uh, to deal with because there wasn't the the level of support that there there is out there at the moment. Um, so, um, the impact that we as healthcare professionals can have outside of specialist services can be really really um, important. You know, we talked earlier about you know what what GPs can do you know I've seen that for myself working in sexual health some some years ago oh, some years ago it's nearly, nearly 10 years ago now I helped set up a service in Bryant called Clinic T which is a trans-specific sexual health service um, and we see people for much more than just sexual and reproductive health so many people are coming in who are uh, needing support around uh, their transition related um, care and that was one of the things that, that drove me to uh, to move into uh, 
working at a gender identity clinic was just to be able to get the skills to be able to to help people, uh, but, but do it in a way that um, we could address that healthcare, but from a community led stance really and that's always been my mission to try to break down that barrier between you know that that health that power differential that we were talking about between doctor and patient uh, that healthcare imbalance um and i think that that is really the, the the kind of vision that i see for the future of trans healthcare so i kind of diverged off the point <laughs> that's all right sorry no that's fine sophie did you have anything to say on that yeah, I mean, I think it doesn't matter what kind of doctor you are. Um, it might be that you're not somebody that somebody goes to to ask for a referral to a GIC, or you might be a GP and or a similar healthcare worker who does who is able to refer. And that's one point in time in, in a number of contacts that somebody's going to make with a health professional. So I would say it always comes back to the basics. It always comes back to how to consult in an affirmative and inclusive way. And, it, and, and the simple things like checking somebody's name and pronouns, it sounds so basic. And often when I teach medics, they're like, oh, well, I want to understand hormones. It's like, well, if you want to be the best doctor that you can be, do the name and pronouns above anything else. Because what it does, and it doesn't matter whether someone's asking you for a referral to a GIC or whether they're coming to talk to you about their abdominal pain or chest pain or whatever it is, just by doing that and demonstrating that you get it, that you've had clearly had some sort of inclusive training somewhere along the line, opens the door and the trust for them to then tell you what exactly it is that's wrong with them, because they might not even come to you in the first place. They might come as a tester to just sort of see mm. what you're like. And, and you'll find that actually this is, this, this is the gateway to a really um, profoundly powerful doctor-patient relationship that will give you access to the things that are really important to that person in terms of their health. And so you'll, you'll, they'll talk to you then, you'll find, about their partners and maybe sexual health concerns, whereas they probably wouldn't have done and they might never see you again if, if you get off to the wrong kind of start. So mm. I can't emphasise enough the importance of getting the basics right. And actually, sometimes when I receive a referral at the other end, so with my gender clinic hat on and I and I receive referrals from GPs and I read them. And I can imagine what the person's feeling when I read the referral, depending on whether somebody asks them about their name and pronouns and reflects that in referral. I think, oh, gosh, brilliant. That person's had a fantastic contact with that GP and I'm so over the moon. And your student society's pushing for inclusive training at your level is the way forward, is the answer, because I'm seeing the more teaching and training I deliver, the more I see that reflected in the referrals and I recognise the GPs and I think, oh, well done. Something sunk in. You've, you've done a cracking referral and all they've done is sat and listened and just remembered the basics. So I would say, yes, of course, Kate's right. There's lots of informal support that people have because people will always find people like them. And third sectors and informal groups have always been the kind of the bedrock, I guess, of support for people. And GPs and other health professionals can always signpost people who are isolated, who maybe haven't found their, their tribe, to kind of good sources of support. And I and will give you some really good links that you can add to the podcast so that people know where, where they are and how to do that. But I genuinely believe that it's a very long wait if, if it's somebody that does want to see a gender service. And it is such a small part of their like Kate was saying earlier, 
they're going to see you for lots of other health conditions. And I think getting the basics right is absolutely fundamental. Um, we also, in Wales, um, when we do receive a referral, we have built in something, some peer support similar to what Kate was talking about with the Clare project. We've linked in with Umbrella Camry, and they are our third sector charity that we, we partner with. And they offer also people with lived experience who can reach out to people who are waiting on the waiting list, because it is a long wait, just to make sure that there's you know some transition related support they might want to build in. I think that's such a good idea. Um, and I had a comment as well from a transmedic who said that they... Um, I suppose it kind of starts at the reception as well and just the entire environment. Um, and they'd said, I wish GP practices were better at respecting preferred names. Mm. And this is a person who's kind of reminded their practice several times, this is this is my name. And they've been called out by the wrong name several times. But it's, it just shouldn't be hard to do that and just make the environment even, um, you know, accommodating. And they said that that was quite disheartening. That was their, their own words. Yeah. No, it makes a massive difference. Mm. I think that, you know, you know, like that person was saying, the little things, but even before you get to see somebody, before you get to see a, a you know, healthcare professional, if you've had a horrible experience in the reception, that just sets the tone for the rest of the consultation. And it's really important that all your staff are included when you're doing any kind of training. Mm. When when we were setting up Clinic T, we, we had members of our community come in to, to do that training. And we did it with the entire staff, you know, everybody from you know, admin, reception, our nurses, the doctors, the whole clinic staff was there. You know, we were one team. And I think that's the, that's, that's the key. You know, every single interaction is important. We can't, you know, we can't just sort of say, oh, well, no, we're just only going to do this for, you know, for the doctors or for the nurses or for the health advisors or, or whoever. Every interaction is, is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would second that, because if you think about going to the doctor as you're, you know, on your own, you know, any, anyone going to the doctor or whether it's in, into a hospital setting or into a GP surgery, you're, you're never going to just magically appear in a consulting room. You're going to have to pass the person who wants to know your name. You might be picking up the phone and you might be misgendered or misapprehended on the telephone when you're calling to even make an appointment. So I'm, I'm the same in Wales. We try to encourage all allied staff to join any training that's delivered even if some elements go over their head there's still so much that's there that can be taken away and I sh- and I also encourage any health professionals that come to share the learning with the team the team on the ward the team in the admin you know area because too much we work in silos and I think also you know at health board level or at trust level you know that there needs to be a joined up working around inclusivity. And I'm, I'm, I have to plug Cardiff and Vale Health Board today because today they tweeted three hours ago on the importance of pronouns. They made an announcement that, that staff, all staff can now request that their pronouns are included on their new ID badges. And I just think, great, because this is the way forward. It's about bringing everybody along together. So it's students and staff doctors, nurses, everybody, and health boards and trusts to do the right thing from the beginning and set the tone so that the environment is welcoming so that people do feel that they can safely access that care. If you're referred to a gender identity clinic, people always talk about the year-long waiting lists and maybe you both have an idea of like kind of averages of what that would be in in your regions right now but just kind of what could be a a general timeline if someone 
keeping in mind again that people want different things if someone decided to go for gender affirming hormone therapy if they decided to go for surgery and from the point of a referral kind of what people can expect or what typically would kind of happen it does vary regionally but I would say Kate and you can correct me if I'm wrong from the England side but I would imagine that there's no gender identity clinic in the UK currently that will see anyone within two years for a first appointment I think every everything is two years and upwards at the moment and some stretch to sort of four to five years between the point of first requesting a referral and being seen uh, as, a, as a first appointment. And I think that that is obviously far surpasses the, you know, the NHS commitment to waiting times for any service. So it's, it represents um, the demand for gender identity services far outstrips supply. And I think it's increasingly being acknowledged that this current commissioning arrangement of GICs as a tertiary service um, isn't sustainable because trans visibility is there. It's out there. People have access to information. They can see themselves reflected back and come to Mm. better understand their gender and be able to talk about it and seek help and the right kind of help more easily, despite some of the barriers that we've already discussed. So Demand has, has risen and services aren't catching up. So that, that explains the waiting times. So I think, you know, the time between making that referral request and getting on with your life is super important. And in the Welsh service, like I said, we try to link people in with peer support. So the moment we receive a referral, we will invite people to opt in to receive peer support with Umbrella Camry, the peer support workers there, who are paid. And I think that's another really important thing to say is that so much about what the community gives is done in on their time and why should it be um, the community have so much experience to lend to people wanting to better work out how to make a legal change of name how to come out how to do so in the workplace better understand their rights but i think if if any organization engages with with the community uh, to deliver anything whether it's observing me teaching or or engaging with Kate when she's delivering training, then then they should be compensated for that time. And it's super important, not just to represent the community if you're not trans yourself, like, like myself, and have them witness the inclusive training that I deliver or, or any stakeholder participation in services, super important. And I think the waiting times has been highlighted time and again by, by service users as being um, unacceptable and I think also doctors have added their voice to that too so particularly in general practice they feel that it's unacceptable and of course they see their patients for other things becoming increasingly distressed they might start to develop worsening mental health and they might even go as far as feeling suicidal waiting for gender affirmative care and it's very hard on health professionals too to know how best to help their patient We get regular requests to expedite referrals that were made on the grounds of deterioration of mental health. And yet, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that everybody's in that boat and almost certainly struggling to maintain their psychological well-being, facing such delay in access to these certain things. So it's a really, really challenging time. And I think one of the things that Kate highlighted, and I have too, is those informal links and that social capital, developing those links with groups and, and doctors signposting for support. But also, you know, knowing how to support people in changing their name on their primary care record, which flows through usually into secondary care IT, 
really helps people to establish themselves and gain confidence with their social transition. Um, and of course, uh, you know, as GPs, we need to be aware of particular screening needs and how changing a gender marker might impact on that. But having a can-do attitude or being happy to go and look it up and work out how it can be done is really important. And as a service, to maintain those links with primary care so that GPs feel that if they need help, they can ask, whether it's somebody has got so desperate that they've um, decided to self-medicate with certain hormone therapies, whether it's somebody needing additional support and they're not sure, being able to actually communicate with patients and with GPs as a service is, is really, really so vital. So it's just keeping that communication, helping to reassure people that they haven't been left behind. One of the things that has been done by other clinics and we try to do as well is to publish what referral month we're currently seeing. So it provides a bit of feedback to people to reassure them that they haven't been forgotten. So most people remember that day when they when they built up the courage. I think oh, clearly Kate remembers it really, really well um, because it's such a significant day for so many people. And so they remember their referral date really, really clearly. And so to publish a referral date gives at least patients some feedback as to how the service is doing. And they can also work out the waiting times, right? Because that shifts depending on demand and depending on the recruitment of, of staff to that particular service. I think that that's a really important point about being able to give people that feedback and that uh, knowledge of when, when they're going to be seen that. But the wait times are appalling. We won't beat around the bush about this. It's, it's a travesty that we have a, a national health service that can provide such poor levels of gender affirming care to trans people. It's distressing for patients being stuck in that system, often with very little contact from services. It's also distressing for many of the staff who work in it who desperately want to give a better level of care, but we, we're stuck with the systems that we have. Uh, and even at the moment with uh, the NHS trying to commission um, some new services, what we're, what we're seeing now is that this isn't going to make that much of a dent in the huge numbers of people who are seeking help through gender services. I think what you have to realise is that that, that that moment when you go and you, you tell your GP and you ask for a referral, that's one particular moment. But before that, the time it takes to, to acknowledge it, to build up that courage to be able to tell someone, to actually have worked it out in your head, to know who you are yourself, that could be a really long time. That could be years. You know, for many of us, we've known we were trans for years and years and years before we ever came out and told our GPs. Um, and then at that point, when you, when you think, okay, I'm ready to do something about it, somebody says, okay, then the waiting list for this service is 36 months. Then what do you do? You're sort of left in this limbo you're ready to start, you're ready to do something, but you can't until you've had your first appointment. And it's not surprising that when you see people in that situation, that, that people become increasingly desperate, then people's mental health does cheer it, just like Sophie was saying. People do become suicidal, people do become desperate. Uh, and it's incumbent on us, I think, as healthcare professionals, that we've got to advocate for a better better system, a better way of dealing with this. You know, we, we wouldn't find this acceptable in any other field and any other specialty within healthcare. And I don't, I just don't understand why it just seems to have been thought of as being like, okay, you know, we just have to live with it. That's just the way it is. You know, no, we don't have to live with it. We can do better than this. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And it breaks my heart when I read a referral coming in and I was actually screening some referrals this afternoon before we, before we spoke. And, you know, 
it's it's absolutely right the years that go into you know whether it's because somebody's figuring themselves out or whether it's because somebody has concealed you know they know who they are but they don't dare speak that truth to anybody let alone their gp whatever the reason it is almost always the readiness to move on is is at the point of referral rather than the the testing the water and not entirely sure so so somebody has got to that point of readiness and they've developed huge amount of resilience to get to that point and huge amount of investment and courage to go right. And then the waiting begins. And I think it, I, I, I often sort of wish when I'm screening, oh gosh, do you know how long you've now got to wait? Because you can see that those first steps have been taken. And, um, you know, GPs who provide really excellent referrals will describe that person's gender history you can see those years that have gone into it and I feel so awful to think that that person I won't get to necessarily meet for the next two two years or so so it's very difficult it's very very difficult recording this it's the international day against homophobia biphobia and transphobia as well and it's just uh equality is just not there at all once a person does access does get to their first kind of appointment what can you expect from there is there a lot more waiting involved after that as well it depends a lot on the individual and i think that's one thing that that uh, gender services are increasingly doing is individualizing care so i can't give you a sort of general this is the pathway that happens to everybody because actually everybody's journey and everybody's pathway is is different um the vision that i have and the way that i see transition related care is, is looking at the thing from from the medical side also the social side and you kind of i see it as being like two pillars building up an arch you build the things up gradually bit by bit your medical transition can include the things like the hormone therapy surgeries all those kind of things but the social transition is the 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 bit about just integrating yourself into uh, everyday life um they need each other they complement each other and they should be built up together the sort of a kind of very old-fashioned traditional kind of notion that you have to build up all of the social transition you have to have you know come out you have to told everybody you have to change your name um done all of these things and then at that point once you have you know passed all these tests then you can be started Mm. on some medical treatment and then you can be approved for various things um and i wish that wasn't the case I don't want to work in a service where that is the case, but unfortunately, a lot of very traditional services feel have been have been the way. Um, and trans people will tell you um, one of the hardest things is to be able to come out, but not knowing that you have that that support or not knowing you have that certainty of having the medical help to help you to to transition to help you change your body um, as well to support that social transition so the aim for gender services is to help people in both areas not just supplying uh, medical treatments and if that's all you have you have lots and lots of medical treatment but no nothing to help you with the everyday with the social stuff then i think in that respect then we aren't giving people all of the care that, that people need it has to be a holistic approach to trans health care you know, I'm speaking very much from a, you know, almost like a wish list. This is what, this is why, this is my vision. This is what I see for, for gender healthcare. And I think that that's something which is not, it's not unique to me. It's something which trans people have said. It's, it's something which other people who work in the field have said as well. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. In Wales, it's the same approach. We take the individual, we see where they're at and we meet them where they're at. And we look forward to the future to see what's on the horizon and, and what, what is it that they need to get out of the now and how do we get them there? Because everyone's transition experience is so different. And also nobody transitions in a bubble. I think Kate was saying, you know, it's, it's placing the person in the context of their lives 
and understanding what are all the various links that make that person tick and that make that person happy and that can influence or affect that person. Where are the light spots and where are the dark spots? And that could be mental health, that could be work, that could be relationships, it could be all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, GPs are well placed to do that because we are holistic practitioners, we're general practitioners. So we, we always see the person in, the, in, in, a, in a context of something bigger. And that's how care should, in my view, and I share Kate's view, that it should be, it's that, it's not a tick box. It's not, have you satisfied all of these criteria? Of course, we all work to criteria where you know, there are lots of policies and documents that we, you know, we adhere to and there are eligibility criteria and all sorts of diagnostic criteria and all of that. But actually, what makes the difference to a person, to a human being, is, is to be able to feel safe to talk about the things that they want to talk about rather than thinking that they've got to tell you something that you need to hear in order to tick a box. And it's about, as a service, it's about finding that perfect sweet spot of doing the both together. That's great. Thank you. I like that you didn't give me a straight answer. A lot of people kind of want one, but I think it's good to ask that question anyway to kind of talk about why there is variability within that. So because of there being kind of fear and misconceptions, I would love to talk a little bit about hormones. There is obviously so much information out there that is fairly easily accessible for medical professionals and for people who are interested in that for personal reasons as well. But um, it would be good to have a little bit of kind of a, a chat about the, the kind of the regimens that are available, what they involve, the basics. Um, and I'd love to talk about the benefits of that as well. Everyone focuses on the risks and I'd like to talk about the benefits and... Um, yeah, so if, if either of you had anything to say about that. Yeah, I can cover some of that. I guess my a lot of my job uh, at the gender clinic is talking to people about the hormone therapy. And one of the things that uh, I think has often struck me when I speak to people outside of the gender identity field is this almost a bit of a fear about the, you know, what's involved with, with hormone therapy. I think it's perhaps what you're getting at in mm. the question. If you think about it, you know, all of us have you know, sex hormones, we all have estrogen, we all have testosterone in, in our bodies. It's just a matter of balance. Uh, what we're putting in with gender affirming hormone therapy are those, those exact same, same hormones. It's very different to putting in a completely uh, foreign drug into your, into your system. You're putting in natural hormones. All you're doing is just changing the natural balance around. So I think it's, you know, people, people sometimes see it as being this, you know, highly risky uh, process, but, but actually it's uh, a lot less risky than so many other things that we, that we do in, in medicine. The flip side of it is that uh, it can make such a massive difference to people's lives. Hormone therapy is a slow process. Changes don't happen overnight. They can take years, um, two, three, four five plus years sometimes to occur. The effects of therapy can be really variable from one person to another, and that can depend a lot on your genetics, your age that you start, um, other medical conditions that you, that you might have that may influence the effects of hormone therapy. And um, the regimens that are used, we try as best we can to individualize those to the needs of the person. You know, there are various different ways that you can deliver hormone therapy. All of these, all of these uh, treatments that we use are, are, are used in cisgender people as well. So we're just 
reusing uh, treatments that are you know established out there they're not experimental treatments uh, these are you know well established well tested established medications i think that i don't know does that does that help yeah that's exactly it and if you wouldn't mind kind of just naming the the drug classes or, or what's involved as well and kind of what changes they can bring about like you said it's not done just because and it's for a reason alleviating gender dysphoria and maybe also mentioning when services can't provide that and things like that um maybe Sophie you have experience of kind of bridging prescriptions or um meeting people that have been self-medicating and things like that as well um I think that could be good to discuss too yeah okay so for people who are trans feminine so that could be people who identify as being trans woman or somebody who's non-binary was assigned male at birth but it has a trans feminine identity and they want to transition the the mainstay of treatment is using estrogen um, and all the estrogens that are available that we use at least within the UK are, are estradiol what's available here in the UK can either be delivered as a uh, in, in oral form as, as a tablet or as a patch or or a transdermal gel in other parts of the world, it can vary. So sometimes they're uh, available as uh, as injectable estrogen, but we don't have that available within the, within the UK. Um, we also want to suppress the natural production of testosterone. There are various different antiandrogens that can be used. The mainstay of treatment within the UK is using a GnRH analog, uh, and that uh, suppresses the pituitary uh, axis and that suppresses the pituitary gonadotrophins and that uh, reduces testosterone in that in that way. But again, depending on where you are in the world, the, the hormone regimens can differ. So for trans men, people who are transmasculine, the uh, mainstay of treatment is testosterone. And testosterone itself actually suppresses uh, estrogen very well in the vast majority of cases that people don't need and extra um, treatment to, 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 to suppress it, natural estrogen production. Um, and again, testosterone can be delivered in a, in, a, in a number of different ways, either as an injectable preparation or as a transdermal gel. So those are the main hormone therapies that, that, that are available to sort of in a nutshell, the sort of quickest way to describe hormone, uh, gender affirming hormone therapy. Yeah. No, like I said, there definitely is a lot of information out there as well if you want to know more about that. But it's kind of about the balance of suppressing and adding in uh, hormones. I just wanted to add that as a GP, before I knew what I knew, i.e. I knew nothing. So in Wales, we used to um, commission services from London. And as a GP, I would receive a sort of a three or four page document, which was a sort of a shared care request to ask me to, to initiate hormone therapy in somebody who'd been endorsed for that treatment by the clinic in London. And I, and I, I had to take it home because, you know, I was like, blimey, this is a long document. I better, better read this. And I, and I was really scratching my head thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, this, wow, this is a bit confusing. And I, and I wasn't sure I, I felt a bit out of my depth as a, as a generalist, somebody who never had any training in this area you know, hadn't done any endocrine sort of rotations in my general practice training. And I, and I just thought, I, I, want to, I want to understand this, but I, I did feel out of my depth. So I sort of read it and digested it and broke it down. And then some years later, I rewrote the guidance for Wales in a way that GPs would understand it. And I think I, I, what I needed to do was demystify it because actually what I realised was it was actually really easy but my mind just felt that this was actually a lot and quite complicated. Mm -hmm. And actually it isn't because I'm a visual learner and I just, well, how I rewrote it was I, I, I created really straightforward flowcharts and I wrote it in a way that I felt was the language of a general practitioner in a way that a general practitioner would understand. And the more I do it and the more I've done it, the more I realise that actually 
it's not really a science. It's more of an art. You know, like Kate was saying, hormones are hormones. We use them in primary care all the time. We use generate analogs to, to treat people with um, endometriosis, with support from secondary care. We use all of these treatments. You talked about postmenopausal women, HRT for that. And I realized that actually these are not drugs with side effects. These are hormone therapies. And what we're doing is adjusting the balance of which one dominates in the body. And my, my kind of mantra became, look, if I can do it, anyone can do it. Because I was that befuddled GP and actually realized, no, come on. But I think it's, GPs are extremely capable like, like all doctors, I would say, and they're bright. They've had, a, you know, they've got a medical degree, possibly more degrees. None of this is outside the wit of anybody, particularly a, a medical doctor. And, and I think, but I think what we really need to be talking about is not, is not what is it, because it's anyone can do it. You can follow a step like baking a cake, you know, add two milligrams, then test blood. Then if you're not in a certain level, add another two milligrams, then test blood. You know, this is all very straightforward flowchart stuff that can actually be built into a protocol. And then when you get really good, you can actually realize that this is an art more than a science. And actually you can then be really bespoke around how you link that into a patient's experiences and what they're looking for. And, you know, it can become really fantastic medicine actually. And I, I really enjoy every, um, every encounter that I have with people talking about it, but, it's not what is involved, it's actually who should be delivering that care. Mm. Unfortunately, I don't want to get into the politics of healthcare and how it's delivered, but you know, GPs as they stand are general practitioners. We're trained to provide a contract of services that are general medical services. And this unfortunately sits outside currently the contract that GPs are trained and expected, I guess, and commissioned to deliver. So it actually becomes more complicated than that. And I think that my fundamental message is, it's really easy. It's just that the discussion that needs to be had is more a political one about who should be delivering that care. And no one should can argue in an ideal world that it shouldn't be GPs because we're more than capable and we're perfectly placed because we know that person as a whole human being in the context of their lives, in their communities, the highs and the lows. And we're local and we're everywhere. Yeah. But as a GP, I also know the reality of what that is. And GPs are currently drowning in, in demands, in workload demands, and they are generalists. So that's actually the problem. It's not, is this really complicated? No, it isn't. It, the problem is, how can we change the landscape and allow for people to develop portfolio careers in trans health as GPs to be able to actually deliver that and how can we persuade the commissioners to encourage primary care models to establish and gain the trust of GPs that actually this is something that can be done? And then you get into the financial and all the other implications. And we've, we've, we've dealt with that in Wales. And that's, that's a whole separate conversation. But I think it's just really important to not get bogged down in seeing hormones as complicated. It's more about actually politics and the and the nature of commissioning of services than anything else I would say yeah I completely agree with that uh I think so there's almost a tendency to make it seem like it's this mysterious thing but once you once you sort of peer behind that mist and actually look at it and think oh actually it is really easy like I'm saying compared to so much stuff that we do in medicine you know overall I'm talking about the the the, the entire field compared to so much stuff that we do this is this is really really mm. easy So we're just talking about 
hormones. We were talking about the benefits, the risks being, you know, you can kind of monitor them. I think I'll put up some references, but you know, there's data about that and Kate will talk about the mortality factors that are quite worth focusing our attention on at this time and maybe not get too worked up in hormones and the risk for that in terms of kind of ischemic heart disease and, and things like that. Um, but there's also things you can do, you can know, you can monitor and you can mitigate the risks with kind of DEXA scans for bone density and supplementing with vitamin D and what are your thoughts? I guess for me, it's not the most interesting bit to talk about really. Yeah. Um, I think when it comes to the sort of the uh, the details about you know how you do it, um, there there is the information out there. I think I think that the, I think the more pertinent questions, the really stuff to talk about is you know is you know what we're doing, why we why we're doing this. Um, I think that's that that really yeah. makes a difference. This is about social justice, actually. Yeah, and that's more important than like how often do you do a DEXA? You know, you don't because it's a sex error. It, it, the bones don't care which one you've got. They just care that you've got one. So um, really, bones are fine um, because, they, they, you know, if you do proper care, they don't have a problem. Um, people don't go outdoors very much, but that's a separate issue. And, and, yeah. and dex, I, I guess if you're just blocking endogenous hormone secretion and not replacing with cross-sex hormone therapy, for example, in young people, then, yeah, okay, DEXs are a thing. But again, you're getting into the really fine detail that is not relevant to general medics so i don't think it needs to be emphasized i think what's more about this is that is debunking the myths around the fact that it's not complicated and or risky and actually the real task is dealing with the the lived experiences and the mortality around hiv and suicide and homicide and not whether your bones crumble yeah. or not i guess it's my yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the data bears that out. When, you know, when you look at mortality, you, you know, you don't see complications of hormotherapy being significant contributors to, to mortality. The factors that are associated with living as a trans person uh, and the impacts of those factors on our health that, that make the difference. So the changes to, uh, to our, our mental health as a result of stigma, discrimination, having to you know, put up with inadequate healthcare services, waiting years to be seen, um, those have real tangible detrimental effects on people's mental health. And people do become suicidal. People do um, suffer you know, awful deteriorations in their mood. People can be very depressed. People can turn to, uh, you know, to substances to, to help them through that. And, and that unfortunately does show in mortality figures. And the other thing you know, that's particularly important for me as a sexual health physician is the, this mortality associated with HIV and AIDS. Um, and that's particularly poignant at a time now where in the UK we're, we're we're seeing you know rates of HIV dropping we don't talk about people dying of HIV these days we talk about people living with HIV and yet when you look at figures worldwide of trans people the HIV prevalence is, is enormous in trans women worldwide it's one of the you know the highest risk factors for HIV acquisition um, and unfortunately also the uh, one of the most significant uh, drivers towards um, towards mortality I think many countries, you know, as, as Sophie mentioned earlier, is the you know, is the risk to our lives from uh, from violence, not just sort of stranger violence, homicide, that sort of thing, but you know, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, um, and that that happens, that happens, and that's often unseen, that's often not reported, 
or where it is reported, it's 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 not recorded, um, and sometimes it's trivialised, and sometimes it's thought of as like, well, you know, you're trans, you know, that's just that's your life, you just get on with it, um, and that's 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 terrible, that's awful, and you know, you know, we're like you're saying, we're recording this um, on a day when we sh- should be thinking about the impact of homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia uh, on 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 people's lives, um, and it is unfortunately still hugely significant uh you know and i think it's something that all of us as, as healthcare professional uh, professionals have to have to be aware of you know we don't we can't just exist in in our in our little uh bubble of just dealing with with healthcare this person comes through the door and says oh okay you know all i see is is the, their blood test results and their figures and their their measurements or whatever um this is a human being that's living in the world and that world is having an impact on that person's healthcare what am I doing about more than just tweaking their hormones? How am I campaigning and advocating for that uh, that person, that community, those people? How you know that's what it means to be you know that comes to the heart of what it means to be a, you know a trans ally. I think that you know uh, listening to to us, listening to trans people, and listening to our uh, our needs, uh, you know, reading the stuff that we write, listening to a podcast that we where we we go on and talk about this stuff. That's how that's how you that's how you find out about this stuff, um, and the willingness to campaign and to uh, to advocate for more than just the patient sitting there in front of you, but for the whole group of people. I think that's what really that's what we really need to to. That's what I really want to inspire in in, in medics these days. Yeah, mm. even if you're not somebody whose job it is to tweak somebody's hormones, as a doctor treating somebody with respect and dignity is Absolutely. If you think about the context of of their lives in every other element where they're having to deal with transphobia, biphobia, homophobia, they need a break. They do not need a medical professional misgendering them, calling them by the wrong Mm. name, insisting on using birth assigned pronouns if their pronouns have changed. They just don't need this in their lives. And it's not beyond the wit of anybody to manage to treat somebody with dignity and respect. We're not expecting people to know how hormones work. We're expecting people to conduct themselves as inclusive practitioners in whatever field that they train in. And I used to teach, when I because I teach um, GP trainees, as I said, and GPs and medical students. And actually, I'm thrilled that the demand for inclusive healthcare training has come from students, actually, mm-hmm. and, you know, in all levels to the institutions to say, why is our health training not inclusive? And it's been great because I haven't had to do anything. I haven't had to advertise. (laughs) Um, But I used to talk about what is sex, what is gender. And I I too got caught up in the current UK rhetoric around debating whether people exist or not. And I thought, actually, why am I? This is absolutely irrelevant and not central to the lives and needs of health needs of trans people. And now what I do is I threw all those slides out and I actually start any training that I give with a rundown of social justice and talking about health inequalities, social inequalities and social justice, because we all, whether we're cis or trans, so non-trans or trans, human beings understand what it's like and take certain rights for granted. Things like the ability to marry, work, live and die as us. And I think that non-trans people don't necessarily fully understand that actually even some of those basic, simple things that we take for granted 
are actually harder to achieve as a trans person in the UK. And I think if you start there and then you get on to talking about healthcare, it makes people really realise our privilege and that rights cannot be assumed just because cisgender people have them, that actually that, that that's what everybody gets. It's not the case. It's not the case. And of course, there are really important intersectionalities as well. And the, I think the Black Lives Matters movement has really amplified the importance of intersecting identities mm. and joined that force for pushing for minority groups to work together and push for justice. And it's, it's super important. Yeah, thank you both so much for that. Um, I can see sometimes people talking about, you know, like, oh, respect everyone and like, don't get too political and things like that. But it's, I don't want to just be kind of treating someone with medication, you know, and it's about the holistic thing. And it's about being an advocate. It's about getting political and getting involved. We're talking about equality. And so there was that report that kind of inquiry that was published in 2016. And the direct quote is the NHS is letting down trans people. It's failing in its legal duty under the Equality Act. Trans people encounter significant problems in using general NHS services due to the attitude of some clinicians and other staff who lack knowledge and understanding and in some cases are prejudiced. The NHS is failing to ensure zero tolerance of transphobic behaviour. And it's, you know, that's just, it's frustrating because, you know, education wouldn't take it all away, but it's it's basics that are going wrong. Like you're saying, like, we shouldn't get too bogged down in the in the minutiae of all the kind of transition-related healthcare as well, but it's just the, the basics. Um... Uh, you touched on this already, Kate. The kind of the what are the the main issues we should tackle? So you know, sexual health and um, substance misuse and mental health and suicide and kind of one of the first sentences as well in from that summary of that report. Shocking statistics: about half of young trans people and a third of trans adults attempt suicide. And I remember in in like my psychiatry block, we were talking about like risk factors for suicide, and we were talking about eating disorders and alcohol and this was not not to say that it's like it should have been like specifically in the psychiatric block, but it's just never been highlighted to me, these figures and the reality. It's people, it's not just numbers. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's making me angry and, you know, just as a, just as an ally. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to get on to talking a little bit about, you know, we already mentioned this, Kate, but the, the kind of the issues and what can be done to, to kind of tackle that, having established that kind of risks from hormones and things like that are not kind of the main thing we should be focusing on here, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, I mean, there's a lot of things that we can that we can do. Uh, one of the things I think that would, that, that would make a big difference is to improve visibility of trans people in this field. Um, you know, I, I, I sometimes feel a little, I, I know I'm not alone. I know there's lots of other people who are who are, who are campaigning and who are who are doing this, but sometimes it can feel like a very lonely place to stick your head above the parapet. Um and it can feel a very uh, vulnerable place to, to to do that. Uh but I think also as as you know, as a trans person trying to access healthcare, you know, you there, there isn't really the you, you know, you go into places and they're they're designed without you in mind. people said that to us when when we were setting up the sexual health service. They um so you know we want a sexual health service that's that that is designed for us um and and then we kind of realized that yeah if you just look around none of the posters show trans people none of the leaflets have anything to do with trans people um you always feel like you're you know you're an outsider in a in a cisgendered world um and um one of the things that can make a big difference is to improve that visibility um I guess the other thing that is 
that I guess would make a really big difference is for, and I, I know this is something I wish that all medics would 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 really understand is this the, the importance of this this thing called cultural humility. Um, I've heard this spoken about a, a few times. Some you know, a few of my friends have, have talked about this. Um, this idea that you don't have to to necessarily have you know personal lived experience, but you can approach somebody from you know from a minority population with that humility to understand that the, that that person's experience may be very different to your own, and that will have a, a, an impact on on how they perceive you and how they how they're accessing and viewing and and um, utilizing that healthcare service. Um, you know that that sort of commitment to always wanting to to learn and to 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 have that sort of critical self reflection. You know, we talked a bit about power imbalances. You know, trying to overcome those power imbalances um and you know just just having those you know that kind of respectful idea that this this is you know a partnership when we are building a service for uh for trans people that this is a this is a partnership this we you know we, we stand as equal partners here um but you know i think if if medics can go into um their kind of interactions with their patients with that kind of mindset in place and I think that that medicine overall not just in trans healthcare but overall will be a much a much kinder place and I think that people will get so much more out of out of their healthcare. Yep I agree with everything you say there's a surprise I think the word for it is co-production mm-hmm. I don't know who t- who coined it but it was certainly used by a very well-known GP in the South Wales Valleys called Dr Julian Tudor Hart and if you don't know who he is, Google him, because he was a remarkable man. He worked with the mining community. And in fact, that mining community, that very mining community marched some years later in the 80s with the LGBT community at Pride, you know, in the film Pride. Mm. And there's so much intersectional um, agreement around stigmatisation or discrimination or marginalisation between communities. And as a health professional, you might have a position of privilege, but you might also have some lived experience of belonging to a, a minority group yourself. And that cultural humility is so important to really understand, to see the world, try to see the world through the eyes of the person in front of you. But I think the other thing that often gets talked about is we always mention suicide. We can get very dreary and desperate and think of trans people as as kind of somehow lacking somehow sort of down and depressed and hiding away and actually if anyone's experienced suicidality um provided you don't complete suicide you develop so much resilience and as a as a practitioner i've been absolutely stunned by the resilience the internal resilience that trans people develop over the years the resilience to to figure out who they are to then tell people who they are and to then assert who they are in the wider world in the context of potentially a transphobic community or, or more widely. And, and I'm always just so utterly impressed by people and how they overcome these things. And I think, you know, experience of suicidality for so many people gives them so much strength and such a strong internal locus of control. And I don't want us to think about trans people as being weak or, or, or disempowered or, you know, in some way lacking capacity because of their otherwise being incapacitated by all these mental health difficulties associated with being a minority group, because it's not like that. And you think about people who self-medicate and a lot often the idea is that somebody who 
who takes their transition into their own hands is somehow, you know, I don't know, not thinking right mm. or is somehow risk risky or, mm. or you know, silly and badly informed. In fact, people who self-medicate are some of the most well-informed people I've ever met. Mm. They tell me my job, you know, when I get to meet them. They know hormones in more detail than I will ever know, by and large. And it, it is endemic. We did an audit of our, of our patient group in our service in Wales and, you know, around one in four self-medicate or had a history of self-medicating. And these are people who have developed so much resilience and information that they've decided to take their transition into their own hands and make it work for them. And I think it's just really important that we don't see people in a particular way, that we actually respect their journey and respect their resilience, because by and large, this is what I'm getting at the other end. And co-production and informing your service and informing your practice by listening is probably one of the best things that you can do. You won't find it in a book. Just unplug your ears and listen to what people are telling you, and you'll be a great doctor for it, really. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for that. We mentioned how trans people will access health care services in all different areas, primary care and secondary and hospital and, and all of that stuff. And, you know, there's uh, just from obstetrics and gynecology, not just women have uteruses and mm. things like that. And obviously there's lots of different gendered areas of medicine. I mean, medicine is, is very gendered itself, but um, it would be great if you could talk a little bit, Kate, about the kind of the perinatal services, the work that mm. has been done with you and people in your team on kind of as an example to highlight how it could be made more inclusive and just as a kind of a general area that could be made a bit better at the cost of nothing, really. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't It wasn't me, but primarily who, who, who did that. It was mm -hmm. two, two midwives and, uh, and, and the department in Brighton, okay. where, I, where I work, um, who, who led on this. Um, and there was a real realization that the services as we had them much like a set of sexual health um didn't reflect the the needs of the people coming in there particularly the people who are transmasculine who are who are coming in to access um uh, perinatal care going into actually a very difficult environment because this was this was an environment that was set up predominantly for women that's not a wrong thing to do because that's the vast majority of people who come through those, those those services. But when you have no visibility at all, you know, I was talking earlier about this lack of visibility. You have no visibility. You can't see yourself in the service that you're 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 accessing. It becomes a very alien place, and it becomes very difficult to, to do that. Um, and so, it it creates a barrier to healthcare by by, by that. So one of the things that uh, that they, they wanted to do was to um, to see how can we make our healthcare more inclusive to those transmasculine people who are coming in there and yet not exclude and not uh, alienate the vast majority of cisgender women who uh, who needed the need those services because uh, maternity care has changed over the years if you look back centuries ago it was it was a very different very different place um and uh, the place for uh, for you know women centered um, care is something which has been hard fought for so that was something that you know they didn't want to, didn't want to lose um so there's a lot of consultation that went into uh, went into the the documents and a lot of um pulling together various different people to form a multidisciplinary team to uh, to develop uh, guidelines and to involve trans people from the community and from um, and people who are professionals at every step of the journey um and just like Sophie was saying this was a co produced piece of work and you know I'm proud to have been you know part of it in a you know, relatively small way but it's um 
that is something that I see as being, you know, the, the future of trans healthcare. It doesn't, it doesn't exclude everybody else. It's inclusive um, and it's co-produced and it's produced by trans people for trans people with trans people in mind and with an acknowledgement of how that sits within the greater framework of uh, healthcare services. And that's why I think it's such a, you know, it's a, it, was a, it was a great piece of work and so I'm very proud to have been involved with it. Thank you. I'll try and link some of the stuff like breastfeeding and chest feeding, which I really like. Just a little subsection of it, but I quite like that. I just wanted to point this out because there was a huge uh, backlash, um, often mainly actually mainly due to misreporting of uh, of you know the the language document, um, and I think that's something that we that we that we face increasingly now, particularly in the UK, but you know also in in other parts of the world, transphobic backlash about. The, the stuff we do um, anytime we we stick our head above the parapet to, to advocate for trans health care um, it's often misrepresented and that's that's really regrettable because you know you can be doing really really good work and you can be doing stuff that is really vital to to try to to get healthcare out there and when it is misrepresented in that way it's incredibly demoralizing um, yeah, I just wanted to I just wanted to say that because no, sure. uh, that's that's the that's the climate that we that we live in, and that's the um, that's the environment that we have to work in. Yeah, thank you. So, if you did, you have anything that in particular that you wanted to add? Yeah, I, I mean, I always like giving practical examples for somebody who's mm-hmm. listening, who's in a particular department. You know, you might be listening to Kate thinking, "Oh, that's okay. I'm not in Opsangani, or I'm not in sexual health, so I'm just going to switch off." But actually, every doctor in the UK has a department. And in the department, there's going to be a form. Why don't you go and pick that form up and decide whether it actually is inclusive of a trans person or a trans user of that form? And here in Wales, we've got incredibly supportive institutions. So you think about deaneries, you think about health boards or trusts, you think about department level. We work as an ecosystem and we exist within that ecosystem. And actually, all of it can pull together and I've found a a huge amount of warm welcome and an interest and investment in making our systems more inclusive because we talk about cis-normativity, we talk about trans people being invisible in health data, in IT, in departments, and we can all do our little part to say, hey, you know what, this form actually isn't going to work for trans people. It's going to take them in the wrong direction or it's not actually involving them. How, How might we change it? So, you know, like everybody can do that. And I don't want people thinking, oh, I'm not in a maternity ward, so that's not for me. There's something in everything. Any hospital department will have a form that doesn't take account for gender diversity. Yeah. That's really, really valuable. So thank you for that. Now, I said there's like so many more things we could discuss and I'll do my best to kind of add some more information. Um, A really good book that if you're kind of at uni, you can access probably through kind of your institutional login and if you're, if you have institutional login for other things. Um, And oh, I wrote down the title of it. Um, Transgender Health, A Practitioner's Guide to Binary and Non-Binary Trans Patient Care. If you feel like you've listened to this and you've not had kind of specific answers, that would be a very good point to start. I think it's quite accessible. Um... And it's got kind of a glossary with any terminology and things like that as well. So at the end of my podcast, I always ask guests, because it's called What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, what is kind of one thing you wish all medical students or healthcare professional students learnt? Um, We've obviously been touching on this 
time and time again throughout the episode, but if there's kind of one little message you'd like to drum home and giving a couple of resources that you would recommend that people have a look at. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh God! Uh, let me have a think. <laughs> Gosh, um, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're interested in becoming a GP, know that you can have a really brilliant portfolio career. I wake up every morning and I I'm excited to come to work. Um, and if I could recommend it, if you like to read, if you like a short read, I have a very short attention span. Um, so the BSDJ, the British Student Doctor Journal, published in in April an LGBTQ plus issue, so a special issue. And Ben Vincent and myself submitted an article for that journal on what all doctors should know about trans health, a conversation between a medic and a sociologist. And it was literally born out of a conversation that I had with the wonderful Ben Vincent, whose work I would always encourage anybody to read. So that was what I'd recommend if you like an article. And if you like, if you just want to sit down and uh, watch Netflix, you know, um, under a blanket because you're exhausted, um, I would recommend Disclosure because it will really open your mind to realizing how trans people and trans lives have been so terribly portrayed in film over history. And I think that is a wonderful, um, wonderful documentary to watch. Okay, Kate, you've had some thinking time. <laughs> oh God, okay, so what do, what do I wish, what do I want doctors to know? What didn't I learn in medical school? Oh, this is hard. Um, I guess I really want people to know that, that being trans, is not a disease. Don't pathologize us. Just think of us as being just like everybody else, people who need healthcare. Uh, we are human beings like everybody, everybody else. And we really need to feel that we have uh, the confidence of person that we're, that we're seeing. Um, and we need to know that we're going to be uh, respected and understood for being a trans person and to have that understanding that that you will meet us at where where we're at and uh, accept us for who we are um, and be able to to help us in whatever way you can even if you can't there at the moment even if you don't know all everything you you need to know right 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 there you'll be able to just like my GP when I first went to see them you'll be able to take that time to try to figure things out and be able to to help and if you can if you can do that then I think you'll make the lives of so many trans people so much better thank you thank you both so so much I really really appreciate you giving me your time it's been really great just for me personally and I, I quite like where it went in terms of it being you know not so much about the medicine and more about the social justice things because people think that's boring and that's not medicine and but it is medicine and I think once you start to get on placement especially kind of younger medical students might not really think of it as much yeah so I just I think those are really important conversations to have and uh, I'm sure this will be valuable to other people as well so thank you both so much for your time thank you you're welcome thank you for your energy <laughs> I admire you very much thank yeah. you <laughs> And that's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and that it made you think. If you learn something new, why not share this with your friends, family or colleagues? As mentioned, there are indeed lots of further resources and reading in the show notes. You can find Dr. Nambier and Dr. Quinny's socials in the caption and show notes as well. Remember to follow me at Woodlimbs on Instagram and Twitter in order to stay up to date and give me feedback. I love hearing from you. And again, share this episode and others around. I massively appreciate when you do. 
I hope you have a lovely rest of the day and I'll catch you again in another episode. Bye!